All right. Well, church family, as we enjoy God's word together, I'll ask you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 6. If you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand and Bob will be glad to share a copy of God's word with you. We keep some in the back just for that purpose. There is a little note page in your bulletin. If you don't know the drill, we'd ask you to pull that out as well and have that handy. Our summertime journey through many of the New Testament's one another's uh, continues today as we join up with Galatians chapter 6. And the call is issued to us there, as you see it on your note page, to bear one another's burdens. Someone asked me how many more parts there were to the series, and I'm not sure where the question was coming from. Maybe a gentle hint that we should be done. Or I'm not, I really don't know, but uh, we've got a couple more times together around the one another's, and then we're going to be off uh, sharing a brand new adventure, which I'm preparing for now. I'm excited about it, getting more excited about it all the time, and I'm just going to bait the hook today and not tell you what that's all about. But we're headed there, but not quite yet. We've got a few more one another's to take a look at. If you've not been with us up to this point, in the New Testament, there is an amazing collection of some 40 relational directives that the Holy Spirit has left to Jesus' church. 40 commands designed by God to enhance our relationships with each other. With the help of these one another's, which, by the way, are listed on the back of that little note page, if you did not know that, we're hoping to permanently replace a way of thinking and living that is rampant in our culture, a way of living known as individualism. And we are looking to replace that way of thinking and living with a brand new way of thinking and living, and we're calling that one anotherism. Thinking marked by words like we and us and ours, rather than words like I and me and mine. Not individualism but one anotherism. The highlighted uh, one another's there on that, that note page we have already tackled. Today we take on a very special one another, seeking to discover more of what it means for us to bear one another's burdens. Now, someone might say, you know, Tim, didn't we already look at this one another several weeks ago? And if that's what you might be thinking, it would be easy to understand why you would think that. Several weeks ago, we were in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 13, where we are called upon to bear with one another. And it sounds very similar to the one another we're looking at today. Out of Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. But as we noted back then, when we looked at that, To bear with one another and to bear one another's burdens are actually two very different directives. We learned back then that to bear with each other means to cut one another some slack. Remember that? The morning we talked about, we cut each other some slack. I I am to cut you some slack. You are to give me some wiggle room in our relationship with one another. You patiently and you gently and you humbly put up with my silly idiosyncrasies, my odd personality quirks, my annoying to you tics and habits and weirdnesses. And I have plenty of them, right? You put up with those. You cut me some slack. Because the, the big picture here is, is, is more than my, 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 my personal preferences, the quirks of my personality, the likes and dislikes that I have that you may not like. Man, we're in something a lot bigger than that as we do life in Jesus. And so you must bear with me in those things, and I must bear with you. We cut each other some slack. But that is very different from the direction that we are going today as we think about bearing one another's burdens. Today we'll be thinking about how we are to respond when a fellow Christian, a brother or sister in Jesus and in our relational circle, how we are to respond to them when they get tripped up by sin in their life. 
That's very different, isn't it, from cutting each other some slack. What do we do? How do we respond to that brother or sister? What is our responsibility toward them? Well, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, where your Bible is open right now, reads like this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And once again, Holy Spirit, we appeal to you to take these words and bring them to life for us. Now, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't already know, but oftentimes, unfortunately, the church collectively and churches individually have not done this one another, historically done this one another very well. In fact, though, the church ought to be the the very first place where a sin-tripped brother or sister finds those ready and willing to help them carry this sin burden and get get beyond it, sometimes the church ends up being the last place where that help is found. Instead of being a help, instead of being carried and, and uh, assisted, our brothers and sisters who have sinned in our midst sometimes can get worked over pretty hard and not cared for well. I'm reminded of the story of a wife who came home to find her husband at the kitchen counter, shaking frantically, almost like he was dancing very badly. She saw a wire running from his waist towards the electric frying pan. And so she instantly thought he was being electrocuted. And so she grabs a rolling pin that's on the counter, intending to knock him free from this deadly voltage that she thinks has thinks has him in in, in its grip. And as hard as she can, she swings this rolling pin and breaks his arm in two places. When he turns in stunned belief at what she's done, she realizes that he was dancing badly (laughs) to his iPod music with his earbuds in his ears. She had good intentions, but it didn't come off well. Unfortunately, brothers and sisters, this happens in Jesus' church sometimes too, where the well-intentioned too quickly take a swing at a sinning brother or sister. It's been said that believers belong to the only army in the world that shoots its wounded. That may be a bit of an overstatement, but it's painful to hear it nonetheless, isn't it? This one another has a very special place in the collection of the 40 or so one another's because the Holy Spirit knows how we can sometimes not get it right when a brother or a sister sins in our midst. There is a right way, a better way for us to address our Jesus-confessing friend when sin has gained a foothold in their life. There is a right way, there is a better way for our brother or sister to address the sin that somehow has tripped us up. And we all sin, right? Every single one of us. There's not one in this room for whom the call to bear one another's burdens, our sin burdens, there's not one of us in this room for whom this particular one another does not have personal application. Now, as we seek to always do, we want to begin by putting this one another into a context, into a setting. It's, it's not just hanging out in space somewhere. It's part of a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. So let's do that first. Recall that the Holy Spirit writes the letter of Galatians through the pen of the Apostle Paul to first century churches in the region of what today would be the country of Turkey. Galatians was a circular letter. It was designed to be passed around through several different churches, and it was written to address a deadly false teaching that was gaining some traction in the early church, namely that you needed not only to believe in Jesus to be saved and and have an eternal future with God, but you also needed to follow a number of Jewish rules and laws 
And so Jesus plus good works equals salvation. That was the false teaching that Paul was addressing. And Paul says in this letter over and over and over again, no way, right? No way. Salvation, heaven with God forever is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Nothing else, right? Amen. In verse 1 of chapter 5, Paul writes, It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You've been set free from a rule-keeping relationship with the living God. Glorious good news. Isn't that glorious news? We don't have to try to earn God's love. We don't have to try to do good things to be approved by him. Paul then goes on in chapter 5 to show that in order to to live this newfound life of spiritual freedom that we have in Jesus, we need the power of God's Spirit living inside of us, transforming our hearts and our minds and our characters so that they are a more accurate reflection of Jesus as we do this thing called the Christian life. So we read in verse 22, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things, there is no law. Those nine fruit of the Spirit are really the character of Jesus, aren't they? They're they're his character traits. And if these things are consistently flowing out of our lives, we don't need rules. (laughs) They're the rules. Verse 24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. When we're chasing hard after Jesus, we put to death the flesh. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, since we've been made spiritually alive by God's Spirit through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, let us all keep in step with the Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit gives us our life in Jesus, how can we think we can take even one step forward without Him? That would be Paul's argument. Paul likens us in this verse to soldiers in an army and the Spirit of God is our commander and and we're following his orders and we march in step to his cadence and we submit to his will. He calls the shots and, and we follow. We keep in step with him. And as long as we do that, brothers and sisters, this life in Jesus works, doesn't it? I mean, it works great. It won't be easy. Because we're in a war with sin, we're in a war with Satan, and it's not going to be easy, but it works great when the Spirit leads us. So verse 25, we walk in the Spirit. It is no surprise that precisely at this point, Paul would issue a warning to us to be on guard against our number one enemy when it comes to submitting to the Holy Spirit's lead in our life. And that number one enemy in your life and in my life is pride. When pride comes in, the spirit can't lead. Agreed? Yeah. So verse 26. Let us not become, what's the next word? Conceited. That's another word for pride, isn't it? Let us not become conceited or proud, provoking one another, envying one another. And what do you know? Here are two more one another's but these are framed in the negative these are relational destroyers relationship destroyers to be on the lookout for these are not the things we want to be doing these are the things we don't want to be doing and and these relationship destroyers have as their motivation pride the word provoke means to challenge somebody to a contest Pride will lead us to go after those that we consider to be inferior to us or to envy those that we think might be superior to us. Either way, whether we're challenging or envying from this place of pride, these two expressions betray that our heart is focused on what? On ourself, not on others. Our heart is being self-led, not Holy Spirit-led. And so Paul is warning He's warning us 
Pride's a killer. It produces that individualism that we spoke about a moment ago. That individualism is the deadly enemy of true one anotherism. And so what Paul is really saying up to this point is, listen, brothers and sisters, if we're walking in step with the heart of Jesus, in step with the Holy Spirit, we will never think, I'm better than you and I need to prove it. Provoking. Or, you're better than me and I resent it. Envy. But we will think, you're my brother, you are my sister, and it is my joy, it is my privilege to serve you out of love for Jesus and out of love for you. That's the spirit-led heart. And it is with that kind of a heart, this kind of a, of a perspective that Paul says we are to care for our brother or sister who is caught up in the web of some entangling sin in their life. And if we are walking in humility and not in pride, we, we know that, that, that we have an opportunity to minister to them. And brothers and sisters, we could all of us be in this place of needing to be ministered to, couldn't we? Because of sin. We could all be right there. Because in this room, we're all what? We're all sinners. Yeah. James 3.2 reminds us that we all stumble in many ways. <laughs> I sure do. 1 John 1.8 declares that we all struggle with sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and what? The truth isn't in us. And because we're sinners, 1 Corinthians 10.12 sounds the alarm that we're just one short step away from falling ourselves. So if we think we're standing firm, we... Be, we ought to be careful because we could what? We could fall. So we're going to approach these next few verses with that kind of an awareness, that kind of a spirit, knowing that but for the grace of God, I could be right there myself. In verse 1, as you see it there on your note page, when our friend, when our brother or sister in Jesus does a face plant with sin, what's the first thing we're supposed to do? Pick them up, right? We are to pick them up. This is the first responsibility that we have. When, not if, but when such a situation incurs as we're doing life with people in our church, someone sins. We pick them up. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness no bone-breaking wax with a rolling pen, right? A spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. In Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of this very same verse out of his book, The Message, he puts this verse like this. If someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him, saving your critical comments for yourself. You might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. Yeah, so true. Notice that Paul refers to the Galatian Christians in the very first word of verse 1 as what? What does he call them? He calls them brothers, a term that we've already used a number of times uh, just this morning as we've been talking together. We've, we've come up with brothers and sisters. We've said it numerous times. It's a word that lets us know that because of our shared faith in the Lord Jesus, you and I are part of what? We're part of the same family, right? We belong to one another through our shared faith in Jesus. We are brothers. We are sisters. We're part of one another. So what is then the situation that Paul puts in front of us? It's, it's a hypothetical situation, but it's real. It's going to happen. What is it? Well, we have a brother or sister, a fellow follower of Jesus, like us, who has been tripped up in their walk with Jesus by some sin that they've committed. When this happens, that brother or sister needs what? Needs to be helped back up. The words caught and transgression are important in 
this verse because they let us know what kind of sin is in view here. The word caught, for instance, was a word that was used in Paul's day to refer to a bird or an animal that had suddenly become entangled in a snare or in a trap. For the animal, that was not planned. That was not expected. That was not anticipated. And in the same way, uh, this brother or sister who gets caught in a sin has been surprised by it. It has been something that came upon them suddenly. They weren't expecting it. While the, this, this might mean that our friend was actually seen committing a sin and they got caught, it is much more likely, given the particular word that Paul uses, that he's thinking about this Christian who gets caught by a sin in a way they did not expect. That's why the King James renders this phrase overtaken by a fault. This understanding of caught gains even more traction because the word Paul uses for transgression means to stumble or to slide off of a slick path unexpectedly. In other words, Paul here is thinking about some kind of a sin that you didn't expect to come into your life. It just kind of caught you up and it took you and you went down. Not thinking here about a long, entrenched, ongoing secret practice of sin in a brother's or sister's life. That would be dealt with in a different way. Our brother or sister does not commit this sin with premeditation, but rather fails to be on guard or perhaps flirts with some temptation that they foolishly think they can handle and then they discover that they can't and it, and it takes them. This friend who tries to live his or her life in their own power in a given moment falls, resulting in a sinful crash rather than in the fruit of the Spirit. A believer is suddenly tripped up by a sin, a transgression, a trespass, however your version renders that word And now they're lying on the ground and everybody knows it. A good example of this thought, this kind of a sin, might be right out of Peter's life on the very night that we just remembered a moment ago, the night of the communion time. Remember, Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And and what does Peter do at a point in that evening? Well, if you remember, he became proud conceited. He compared himself to his fellow disciples and he boasted that he would never bail on Jesus even if everybody else did, right? You remember this? Yeah. He says, they may all run but not me. I'm, I'm in all the way, Jesus. You can count on me. I'm, I'm going to the wall with you. Now this is the very attitude that Paul was warning us about a moment ago in verse 26 of chapter 5. Of course we know how this little moment ended right yeah Peter denies Jesus three times before the sun comes up he got snared by pride the sin of pride he did not see that coming he wasn't intending to go in that direction that was not his plan and we all know what this feels like don't we I know what this feels like you know what this feels like we've all been there we step onto a slippery path's Sin is crouching at the door. It's it's hidden like a snare. And before we know it, we're caught up in it. We're tripped and down we go. And that's the situation. That's the, the kind of moment that Paul is picturing here. When that happens, according to verse 1, who is to help this sin tripped brother or sister? According to the verse, who's supposed to help? Yes? a spiritual brother or sister, right? Isn't that what the verse says? The person best equipped to to help a fallen follower of Jesus is one who is spiritual. Now, what in the world does that mean? Am I disqualified from ever being a part of that? Well, in this context, Paul's already told us what this is. It's those who are doing Galatians 5.25, is it not? those who are walking in the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit and are consistently reflecting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, these are the ones who can do what? They can pick up 
that sin-tripped brother or sister because it's, it's, it's spirit, they're, they're living out of a spiritual place in their life, led by the Spirit of God. This one another is not reserved for super saints. And this is so important for us to get, church family. The spiritual people here um, might cause us to think, man, I, I'm not in this. This is not me. I, I'm not some spiritual giant. I'm not talking about spiritual giants. It's talking about ordinary people like you and me who are relying on the extraordinary enabling power of the Spirit of God, walking in step with Him. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Do we always do it right? No, we don't. But we are seeking to be spirit-led. In that moment, we are spiritual. Let me say this another way. Bearing each other's sin burdens is not a job that only the mature in Jesus are supposed to carry out. We hear about that, don't we? Maturity. Growing up to become mature in Jesus. Maturity in our Christian life is, quite honestly, is a relative thing. How mature we are depends on a number of different things. How much time we've, we've had as a Christian, uh, training, uh, study, sitting under good teachers, uh, self-discipline, all of these things. Many factors contribute to where we are in terms of our maturity in Jesus. And this morning in this room, every one of us are at a different place, aren't we? On a continuum of growing in Jesus, we're at different places of maturity. Spirituality is not like that. Spirituality is, is, is an absolute reality that is unrelated to time. It's unrelated to our maturity. At any point in the life of any one of us, from the moment of our salvation in Jesus, the moment we believed in him until we see him face to face, we are either spiritual or we are walking in the flesh, aren't we? There's no middle ground. We're either spiritual or we are walking in the power of, this, of, of the flesh. I'm either spirit-filled right now or I am Tim-filled. The same is true for you. Maturity is just the accumulation of all of our times of being spiritual. So any believer at any point in their growing into Jesus can be a spiritual believer who helps a sin-tripped brother or sister. And so this one another is laid on all of us today, not just some of us. So what do the spiritual do for their sin-tripped friend in this verse? Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, what? Should restore him. The one who has been fallen is in need of being restored. There's a TV program on the History Channel. It's called American Restoration. Are you familiar with this, any of you? Have you ever watched this show? I've only seen it a couple of times, but I, I, I've seen it enough to know this. It's a, it's a program dedicated to showing how things that are old and trashed and beat up and faded and broken and useless and, and ready to be thrown away, how those things are brought back to their original condition and many times even better than they were originally. I don't know the guy's name, but he sure is good at what he does on that program. It's amazing what those restoration uh, outcomes look like on that show. And that's what restore means. It means to make something that's broken or trashed whole again by bringing it back to its former condition. In Paul's day, this word restore was the word that would be used when you were going to set a broken bone. The arm's been broken. It needs to be set. It needs to be brought back to the way it was before it was broken. It needs to be restored. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 21, it refers to the mending of a torn fishing net. The net used to be in great shape. Now it's got this big tear in it. We need to do what? We need to restore it back to what it was originally. The spiritual believer gets the awesome privilege. Get this 
of, of partnering with God in the restoration process of another sin-damaged brother or sister. God lets us share in that process. It's amazing. First of all, how do we do that? I mean, how do we go about restoring a brother or sister? What's our part? Well, perhaps the first thing we do is help rec- help that brother or sister recognize their sin if that has not happened, if, if they're just too close to the situation, they don't see it. We help them. We bring that out into the light for them because until a person sees their sin and admits their sin, they can't go anywhere but farther down, right? They have to recognize their sin. So we help them. And once that happens, then we encourage them to bring their sin before their heavenly Father and, and, and lay it out, confess it. 1 John 1, 9, how does that verse go? Boy, every Christian better know this one, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. We come alongside of that sinning brother or sister and we pick them up and we remind them of this verse. And then this will be joined to a sincere um, desire on the part of that person to want to turn away from that sin and never go back there again. And we call that repentance. We encourage them towards repentance, not repeating that, that sin again. We, make, we help them to make any relational repairs that may have occurred because of the sin that they committed. Maybe they damaged some friendships or, or wounded some people. And so we come alongside, we pick them up, and we help them to, to restore those damaged relationships. And then we help them rest in the forgiveness that God promises through Jesus because that sometimes is hard for a brother or sister. Jesus, I believe, needed to do this with Peter. Remember in in, uh, John chapter 21, Peter's gone back to fishing because he thinks he's all washed up after his night of three three denials. You remember this? He's put himself on the shelf. And so Jesus comes to him in John 21 and And he loves on Peter and he gives Peter three opportunities to do what? Confess his love back. And so Jesus restores him. And and then Peter, knowing that that has happened, is ready to step into new ministry that Jesus has for him. But we need to help our friends do that sometimes because they just just don't know if if God would really ever want them back in in the groove again. If our friend has been tripped up and been broken by some sin, he or she needs us to come alongside in order to pick them up and restore them. Is there right now anyone that you can think of who is going down some slippery path and they're possibly in this room right this moment and they need you? They desperately need you to not pry into their life and get into their business, but if But if they have fallen because of some sin, is there someone that the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you need to come alongside of them, you need to pick them up. I am challenged and comforted by the words of James uh, 5.19. It reads like this. If anyone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back again, you can be sure that the one who brings that person back will save that sinner from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Isn't that a great verse? I want to be part of that. I want to be part of that process. Sometimes I'm going to be the one who's going to need that process, but I want to be part of that. Now, we just said that some of the steps in this restoration process will include helping our sin-tripped friend recognize their sin, confess it, repent of it, turn away from it, heal damaged relationships if that's needed, and, and then accept God's forgiveness. But all of that, all of that is going to be done in a particular way. And according to verse 1, what is the way that it will be done? Yes? Gently. Yes, good. Good, you can talk, really. I mean, it's okay for you to to talk. Gently and with humility. Our sin-tripped brother or sister doesn't need a rolling pin, usually. Sometimes, maybe, 
but not usually. What they really are going to need from us is a, a gentle and understanding push, right? That's what they're really going to need. In fact, I came onto a term not long ago that I had never heard before. Maybe you have, but it, it's new to me. But it fits perfectly with what I believe the Holy Spirit, Spirit is calling for from us here. It's the, it's the term carefrontation. You ever heard of that word? Carefrontation. You know, we're all familiar with what? Confrontation, right? We know about confrontation. But have you ever heard about carefrontation? <laughs> I'd never heard that term. When we carefront someone caught in an entangling sin, rather than confront someone, our aim will always be to bring them back to a place of restoration, to a place of not sin hindered in their relationship with their God. We care for them. Carefrontation. I like that. Our goal will be restoration, not condemnation, not judgment, not some kind of I'm better than you attitude, but truly a, a, a gentle, understanding, caring approach. It is both interesting and not an accident. I don't believe that gentleness is one of the fruit of the Spirit that we read about back in 5.22.23. When a friend is in a sin pile of their own making, we go to them, how? Gently. With tenderness. Paul told Timothy to gently instruct in hopes that God would grant repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25. And then joined to this gentle spirit that we bring in our carefrontation, joined to that is true humility. The last part of verse 1 is a call to that. Knowing that though it is our brother or sister who has tripped and fallen, it could just as easily have been who? It could have been me. It could have been you. And so there's no air of superiority, no judgmental, condescending, I'm better than you. But rather an honest admission of our own potential to step into the same sin. And so the exhortation, but watch yourself or you also may be what? Tempted to step into the very same trap. The phrase watch yourself refers to an archer who's taking aim. It's where Paul got this word. Diligent, concentrated, focus. And one commentator said you, you, you actually spy on yourself all the time. I like that thought. Our gentleness toward our sinning brother or sister is born out of our awareness of our own weakness, our own wandering hearts. We're just a short step from falling as well. And so the last thing we want to do is, is come in like some kind of a, of a, a person with a, with a rolling pin. We come in gently and we come with humility because we're just like that person who has stepped into that trap. It's difficult to know how to respond when a brother or sister falls. There's no question we're supposed to pick them up and then after we pick them up, then all of these initial things, then what happens? What happens next? According to your study page, your little note page. What happens next? Oh, we hold them up. Yes, thank you. It's not enough to simply help our brother and sister turn from his or her sin and then, and then leave them alone. That's not going to do it. It is immediately after some spiritual victory that Satan often makes his most severe attacks on God's people, right? The Apostle Paul, knowing this, says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, we've been talking about bearing one another's burdens this whole time. But here we actually come on to the phrase, the words. The word bear comes from a Greek word, baros. And it's a word that is only used when heavy loads that are really difficult to lift, extremely heavy, are in view. That's the only time you use this word. And so we're talking about heavy loads. When I think of this word, baros, I think of the world's strongest man competition on TV. You ever, you ever, you ever see that? 
Yeah, it, it, it's way up there in the high channels. You know, people don't get there sometimes, but I like to watch it. In fact, I like to watch the ones going clear back 10 years ago. It doesn't matter to me. These guys just amaze me. These enormous men who compete in several different disciplines uh, to, with the goal in mind of seeing who is, uh, across the board, the strongest man in the world. And so they do these different events, truck pulls and log carries and all of this. But always, the end at the end of the competition, the last event these guys go through to determine who's the champion is something called the Atlas Stones. Remember this, or do you know about this? The Atlas Stones, they're, they are five perfectly round rocks. Now, you and I would call them boulders. And, and uh, they get larger and larger as they go from one to five. And, and these guys have to, under time, they have to go. And the smallest one weighs 250 pounds. And they reach down and they have to pick that up and put it on a five-foot pedestal. And then they run over and they do it to the next one and the next one. And, and we're talking baros here. We are talking heavy burdens. Some of the guys can't do it. They can't even finish I get a hernia just watching them <laughs> do this. But this word baros thinks of sin, the burden of sin that our brother or sister carries in that kind of a way. It is too heavy for them. In this context, the reference suggests burdens that, that tempt our brother and sister to, to fall back into the same sin from which they've just been restored. There's always that danger, isn't there? In, in the Christian's life. They've, 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 they've been restored from some place that they should never have been to begin with, but, but then there's just this temptation to want to go back there again. A persistent, oppressing temptation is one of the heaviest burdens that a Christian can, ca- can carry. And, and Paul puts this verb bear in the present imperative and says, hey, we are to carry this burden with our brother or sister as long as they need us to carry it with them. We endure. As we all know, to face a sin issue in our life with the help of another, to confess that, to repent it, to accept God's forgiveness of it, doesn't automatically mean that we'll never go back to that place again. If you and I are spiritual and we are carefrontational for our brother and sister, we will be committing ourselves for as long as it takes for them to be free from that particular burden. That's the idea. We make ourselves available 24-7 for counsel, for encouragement, for accountability, and certainly and especially for prayer. That is our most powerful weapon for overcoming sin, for opposing Satan. And nothing will help our brother or sister with this burden more than when we pray for them and we pray what? With them. You bet. There's a few mornings back that we looked at James 5.16, which reads like this. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be restored. Yeah. And when we bear one another's sin burden. In all these ways that we have been teasing out, Paul adds in verse 2 that we fulfill the law of Christ. What do you suppose that means? Bear one another's burdens and you will fulfill the law of Christ. What is that? What is the law of Jesus? What's that? Yes, love, isn't it? You love like Jesus loves. It's the law of love. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you. When did Jesus say that? On the night before he was crucified. Love each other the way I have loved you. How has Jesus loved us? We we just celebrated it, didn't we? He loved us sacrificially. He went all the way to the cross for us. He gave us his very self so that our sin burden could be taken away forever. Obviously, we can't love exactly like he loves, but that's our goal. That's our motivation. I bear your sin burden with you. You bear mine with me as long as there is a need because you love me and because you love Jesus. 
the law of Christ is the law of love. And when we live out that law, we don't need any other laws. We live all the rest out as well. If you flip back to chapter 5 and you look at verse 14, it reads like this. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall what? Craig, what? You will love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Verse 3. For if anyone thinks he's something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. Verses 3 and 4 are now the third warning. The third time we've been warned to be on the lookout for pride. What does that tell us? We got warned in 526. We got warned at the end of chapter or chapter 6, verse 1. And now again, we're warned one more time. Why are we being warned so much about pride in this short section? Because the Holy Spirit knows so well our, our, our human nature. God knows that if you and I will not help restore a sin-broken brother or sister, it's probably because we're focused on ourselves and we're proud. And so we're encouraged to be careful and to test our lives, every aspect of our life. When we do that, we don't compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters because they're not the standard of measure. The only standard of measure will be who? Jesus. We measure our life against the backdrop of Jesus. And when we do that, when we test ourselves against that standard alone, we discover that anything that we have to boast about is only because of what God has done, not what we have done. We did nothing. God does it all. And in that alone, we'll boast. It takes us out of the picture which is exactly the kind of heart that has to be in place if we're going to bear sin burdens for each other. Then we get to verse 5, and it seems to contradict verse 2. Bear each other's burdens, but then verse 5 says, for each will have to do what? Bear his own load. Well, what do we make of that? Well, it's actually a wonderful bit of wise counsel from the Holy Spirit as as Paul begins to wrap this up. While verse 2 refers to an overwhelming burden that cannot be carried by one person alone, it's a a sin burden that's too heavy, the word load in verse 5 is actually a word for a Roman foot soldier's light backpack. Something very light. This this pack was something small. Um, Anybody could carry this pack. And it's, it's not something that you pass around. It's not transferable. That pack belonged to a certain soldier and it was part of how he cared for himself in a daily way. It's a difference between, in this moment, a backpack and an atlas stone. They don't compare, right? And so Paul is saying we're to bear together that which is too heavy for one to handle alone, sin burdens, but the general obligations that we all have as we do life, we bear those ourselves. It's a warning to set good boundaries in your relationships with other people, especially is this true for the one who has a tendency to take on everybody's cares and feel like they've got to try to fix everything in their sinning brother or sister's life. Paul says, no, you don't. Let your friend carry the light stuff. You help them carry the really heavy stuff, which is the sin issues. You let them carry the light stuff. He's drawing clear boundaries for us here, and I just love the practicality of that, don't you? I don't have to fix every problem in my brother or sister's life, but I sure need to be there to help them up and then to carry them and their burden. Restoration of a sin-trip brother or sister. It's hard work. Definitely not for the proud. It's not for the self-righteous. Only the spiritual and the humble need apply. It's a dawning responsibility. It can be frustrating. It can be messy. But it is what we do. Brothers and sisters, we pick up our friend and we hold them up as long as they need us to hold them up because we love them and we love Jesus who loves them. Yes? Several years ago, an angry man rushed through a museum 
in Amsterdam. True story. And he repeatedly slashed one of Rembrandt's most famous paintings with a knife. A short time later, another man slipped into St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome, had a hammer, and he began to smash one of Michelangelo's marble sculptures. These two cherished works of art were badly damaged. What do you think the museum officials did with those two works of art? Do you think that they threw those works of art away? (laughs) No way. They assembled the most qualified people in the world that they could find, and they worked with care and with precision as long as it took until they restored those pieces of art back to the way they were. Are you, am I, ready to be used by the Holy Spirit to restore one of God's sin-damaged masterpieces who might be in this room right now? Are we ready to do that? To bear one another's burdens? To pick up one another and hold up one another? And in doing so, fulfill Jesus' law of love. Are we ready? Let's pray. Well, that is the question, isn't it? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, are we ready to assume our responsibility? How we thank you for loving us so much that you would pick us up and hold us up. May we do the same for perhaps someone in this room who desperately needs us in that way. We know these one another's are not suggestions from you. Father, they are commands. May we not shrink back. May we not shrink back. For the good of our brothers and sisters, for the health and the unity of our church, and for your good name, Lord Jesus, in our community, but most of all for your glory, we ask it. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together.